Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Okay, so if you don't know me, my name is Kirk Bodie. I'm not on staff here. I'm part of the preaching team that formulates messages and reviews messages and things like that. And in my spare time, I practice law. Um, so we're, we're continuing in our series about some of the lesser-known characters of the Bible. We call it supporting cast because oftentimes we know the names and the stories of the big names of the Bible, but we're having a chance to explore some of the smaller, lesser-known people of the Bible. We've looked at people like Barnabas and Habakkuk, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Leah, and Achan, um, and we know that as we look at the Bible and look at these characters, success in the kingdom of God sometimes falls to seemingly inconspicuous people, people that are unknown. They're unknown heroes. And, you know, we have, even in our own midst here, we have those unknown heroes that serve behind the scenes, people that we take for granted, we don't notice, they're not up front, people that are volunteering with the children, how important that is. Uh, to the future of Christianity, to the future of this church, is people that take time to spend their mornings dealing with our children. And then there's also things that prepare the building and the grounds, and even the people in the sound booth that don't get any accolades, but they are supporting people. And that's what we're looking at in the Bible. Uh, and we're gonna, today we're going to talk about the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bible, you may want to turn to 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, we're going to read it, go through it here in a little bit, but to give you a little context, because whenever you want to look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you want to get a feel for the context, the times, the culture, the people, the background. So to give you a little background into the story we're going to talk about here today, this is during a time when the kingdom, this is after King David was king. The kingdom split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And they kind of fight with each other. But also to the north of Israel is a country called Syria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. And that's where those people were warring against God's people. So we also want to, we're going to talk about Elisha because Elisha pops up. So the role of a prophet in the Old Testament. We know a lot of the old prophets, and Elijah and Elisha are two of those prophets. And today, Elisha pops up. And it's important for us to know that a prophet is a person who hears from God and relays God's message to his people. He's like the spokesman for God. He's like the holy man that people will go to to hear a word from the Lord. Not a, not a very popular role oftentimes, but we're going to see that's going to pop up today. So, now we're going to trek through this story of Naaman. Uh, some of us know this story, uh, but we're going to hopefully really mine it for all it's worth. So here we go. This is Naaman um, in 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. That's important. So we start out with Naaman 
he's a, he's a great and honorable man. He's, high, he's a man of influence. He's highly esteemed by his people. He's kind of like a rock star in his own country. Everybody knows Naaman, four-star general. Um, but he's the enemy of God's people, enemy of Israel and enemy of Syria or, or uh, Judah. But for all of his prestige and power and wealth and position, he suffered the disease of the peasants. That is leprosy. He was a leper. Now, for us to understand a little bit about what that means, because we don't know much about leprosy today, and lepers pop up in the Bible, but um, at the risk of perhaps being a little graphic, let me read um, a little bit about this incurable and fatal disease that Naaman had. Here's leprosy. It says, ancient leprosy began as a small red spots on the skin. Before too long, the spots got bigger and started to turn white with a sort of shiny or scaly appearance. Pretty soon, the spots spread over the whole body and the hair begins to fall out, first from the head, then even from the eyebrows. As things get worse, fingernails and toenails become loose. They start to rot and eventually fall out. Then the joints of the fingers and toes begin to rot and fall off piece by piece. Gums begin to shrink, and they can't even hold the teeth anymore, so they're lost. Leprosy keeps eating away at your face until literally your nose, your palate, and even your eyes begin to rot, eventually wasting away into death. Now, I debated whether or not to read that because it's pretty graphic, but I think it also sets the stage for what Naaman was dealing with. We sometimes think of leprosy as like, oh, someone's got a bad complexion or they got a few marks on their skin. But leprosy was an incurable and fatal disease. There was no cure for it. Naaman was headed toward death. And the social effects, let alone the physical effects, the social effects were you were isolated. You had to live alone. You had to live all by yourself. It's a life of isolation and a life of loneliness. So that's where we find Naaman. And he's a desperate man. He's desperate because of his leprosy. So now we find out here God taps things on the shoulder and gets things moving. Starting in verse 2, it reads like this. Now bands of raiders from Aram, that's Syria, had gone out. And they had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read as follows. With this letter... I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So what does this tell us? Naaman is a desperate man. We don't know the backstory of how many other places he had gone to seek a cure for his, le le his leprosy. How many other, quote, gods had he gone to? How many different religious priests and things like that he'd been to? But he's desperate he will seize on anything that will cure his leprosy. He's a man that has a hanging on to hope by a thread. And it's like people today, we hear that, all the different weird 
and unusual cures for things like cancer that people will seek out because they're desperate. Then there's enter the slave girl that we'll talk about later, but she's the real hero of the story. This Israel slave girl, she was everything that Naaman wasn't. She was a slave. She was a Hebrew. She was a girl. And she was a believer in God. But it's a very sad story because she had been kidnapped, taken as plunder when Aram had invaded Israel. She was taken as a slave, probably carried off in shackles and made to serve in the house of Naaman. She wasn't free to come and go. She would essentially been kidnapped. But she goes to the aid of her captor and she goes to the aid of her master. She tells Naaman's wife, you know, back in Israel, there is a prophet named Elisha and I think he could cure your husband. So Naaman sets out, and like a logically thinking guy, he thinks he could purchase this. He's a man of prestige and esteem, but he's also a man of wealth. And we read in the scripture that he takes 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, before we blow by that, from what I've read, that would equals what in today's money would be 1.2 million U.S. dollars. That's a lot of money. And, but he's a wealthy guy, and he's a desperate guy. So he'll do anything, and to him, it's a business transaction. I will pay someone for healing, for being cured. So Naaman sets off, and he arrives in Israel, and here's we go. Here we go. It says this. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to the door to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and thought, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Phaphar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So Naaman comes. He's got his own list of expectations, how this would go down. He's a smart guy. This is how he wants it to go down. He wants to be in control. He gets his king, his master, to send letters of introduction so he can go into this enemy territory. He expects he's going to show up and there's going to be some funny ointment or magical incantations or some ranting and raving or something like that. He's ready for anything. He goes to the king. The king's all worried because he's going to be invaded or he thinks this is a trick. But then Elisha, okay, our prophet, Elisha steps up and says, send the guy to me. 
So then, then, so then Naaman, and it says his horses and his chariots and all of his gold and shekels and clothing, he goes to Elisha's house. And what happens here is a little bit humorous because he goes to Elisha's house and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant to the door. And if you can imagine the scene that's taking place, it'd be like if, if uh, the presidential motorcade stops at your house and you don't even have the courtesy to answer the door. You said, go answer the door, servant. And so he, out the door stands Naaman, this big shot with his entourage, his camels and his horses and his wealth and everything else, and Elisha won't even dignify him by coming to the door. He just tells him, go wash yourself in the Jordan River. How humiliating is it to be treated like that? So there's two ways that, Na that Naaman is really humili humiliated here. Number one, Elisha won't even answer the door. How the message is delivered is really humiliating to Naaman. The second thing is the message itself. The message itself isn't come out and I'm going to wave my hands over you and say an incantation. He says, no, go wash yourself in the Jordan, the dirty, muddy Jordan, and your flesh will be restored. So it's a humiliating, silly, seemingly silly message that he gets. So Naaman is humiliated. He's a big shot. He does, he's disrespected by Elisha. He, it's like he says, do you know who I am? Do you realize that I'm a big shot? <clears throat> I'm powerful? And he thinks he's special. But Elisha doesn't treat him that way. <clears throat> and we know that <clears throat> the Jordan River is a muddy, second-rate river compared to what is in his hometown. He wanted something dramatic. Instead, it's simple and nonsensical. So he goes away in a rage, it says. Now, he's just not irritated. He goes away in a rage. But fortunately for Naaman, it's not the end of the story. So Naaman's traveling entourage of servants comes to his rescue. Here's some other heroes that we don't know who they are. Probably slaves, but they're Naaman's servants. They speak up. They address their boss, which in the culture of the time was huge for them to voluntarily step up and talk to somebody, especially their boss. And they step up and they give Naaman brilliant advice. They say this. It says, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father... If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Simple. <clears throat> he tells you to do something simple. So Naaman takes their advice. We read this. So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, <clears throat> as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So Naaman humbles himself before his team, before his entourage, before Elisha, and really before the God of Israel. He humbles himself and does something that would be humiliating and silly. He walks out into the river and dips himself, dunks himself seven times. And when he comes up the seventh time, no more leprosy. So he experiences a physical healing by performing a simple, somewhat nonsensical act. 
but he also experiences spiritual healing. That's the key. Because here's the rest of the story. He makes a bold declaration that God is the only God. It's a conversion story. Here's what it is. Verse 15, when Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, or then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, Elisha, they stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So that's the end of the story. Oh, I got two, lots of, conclu- lots of lessons here, two concluding applications or lessons from the story of Naaman. The first is this, God's people are blessed to be a blessing to others. You know, we in this room are blessed beyond measure, not just financially compared to world standards, but opportunities we have, people we know, uh, uh, things we can do, education, all jobs, we are very blessed. And the Bible makes it clear that we just don't get blessings so we can live a happy, happy life. We uh, receive blessing from God so that we can bless other people. And when you look at the scripture, that's a mandate that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Back in Genesis, chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And we know the story, but here's what it is in Genesis 12. God calls Abraham. It says this, The Lord has said to Abraham, Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Here it is. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, we think it's all about Israel. We never think about God's care and concern and love for the whole world. We know that when we get to Jesus and he commands his disciples to go into the whole world. But you go way back in the Bible from the very beginning. God's concern was for all peoples, all nations, the entire world, even the Aramites. You know, several months ago, we had a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And if you remember, Jonah was commanded to go to the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Ninevites. The Ninevites were pagan, ruthless, mean people. God cared about the Ninevites. He sent Jonah ultimately there, and there was a great revival. People turned to God. Here, there are the Ninevites. Here are the Aramites, the enemies of Israel. God cares for everyone. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the real hero. You know, this is, this is the story of Naaman in terms of a supporting cast or people behind the scenes, but the real subject matter is the slave girl, the slave girl. Naaman's not the hero of the story. Good story. The slave girl is the hero because as we read earlier, she had been taken captive and she was a slave. She wasn't just a servant. She wasn't just an employee. She was a slave. Probably every night had to go to some cell. And she's the one who steps up and says, if my master would go to Elisha, he, would, he could get healed. So we have a nameless young lady here. A simple step for her to tell her mistress's 
her, her, her mistress's wife about the healing that's available in Israel. You know, she could have stayed quiet. She could have sit back and think, I'm glad my master Naaman has leprosy. I hope he dies a terrible, painful, long, brutal death because he was her captor. Why does she have such an attitude toward Naaman that she would wish him well rather than ill? She should be loaded up with bitterness and anger and the risk of doing this. It's contrary to what we would expect from someone who was a slave to have such well wishes toward their master. She showed outrageous care and concern for her enemy. We don't know why, but somewhere along the line, God had done something in this girl's life, something in this girl's life to replace vengefulness and bitterness with compassion and empathy toward her master. It fits in line with what God told Abraham. It fits in exactly in line with what Jesus says when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the message for all of us today is we deal with difficult people, perhaps people that are opposed to us, let alone are making us slaves. Don't let evil get its claws into you to where you aren't looking to bless other people. Romans 12, Paul says this. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's the story of the slave girl. See, God allowed the tragedy of her, this young girl's captivity to accomplish a greater good. And this young girl is a hero. She's a faithful witness for God despite her circumstances. I suppose in the scheme of things, she's a small player. She's not one of the big names. We don't even know her name. But as, I, as I've said, of some of these other players that we don't even know their names, I want to get to heaven and I want to go down the rolls and I want to look for this slave girl and I want to give her a hug and say thank you for your devotion to God and standing strong for him despite your circumstances. Because we don't know. We don't know the, net, the end result of Naaman. We know that Naaman is converted. Naaman is excited. He, he declares this God is the only God. And he's a man of influence. He's a big shot. He's now healed. He goes back to his home country. We don't know what happened. We can only speculate that a man of influence like this led other people to the same conclusion he reached. All because of a slave girl. She's the hero. And like, just like that slave girl, we are called to be a blessing to everyone we encounter. Even if we don't like them. Even if they are against us. We are to bless people. The slave girl should be our example. <clears throat> now the second and the final point of the Naaman story is this. And whenever you can look for Jesus in the Old Testament and the gospel in the Old Testament, it is fantastic. Here it is. Salvation is a free gift. It is not earned or deserved. 
We see this amazing story of Naaman. He's washed clean from leprosy. And he adopts the God of Israel, our God, the same God we serve, as his own. It's a physical healing and deliverance. It's a spiritual healing and deliverance. How? Because he humbled himself and responded to what would seem nonsensical, a free gift. See, the parallels to the gospel and the parallels to salvation for us are huge. The gospel is a free gift. It can't be earned. It's a free gift to all who respond. You know, it seems contrary to logic. We live in a country where you get something because you do something. There are, nothing is free. There's always strings attached. The phrase, there is no free lunch. There must be a catch, we said. And here, God through Elisha tells Naaman, go dunk yourself in Jordan seven times. It's contrary to logic. It's silly. It's simple. We think that salvation should cost us something. You know, I was a good church kid. I thought years ago that a person came into a right relationship with God by being a church kid, going to church every week, learning the catechism, uh, living a good moral life. I thought that's how you were accepted by God. But there's a difference. Religion is spelled D-O, do. What must I do to be saved? That's re-religion. What works or behavior are necessary for me to get accepted by God? Because it can't possibly be free. That's the name and thought. It can't possibly be free. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. So there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do, It's what has been done for us by Jesus Christ when he took our sins and paid the price for us that we couldn't pay. And now he offers this free gift that if we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, we can be saved. The only thing we must do is accept the free gift that he offers us. Doesn't make sense. Just like Naaman had a hard time understanding a free gift. We have a hard time, but it is a free gift. Let me go through a couple of <clears throat> verses from the New Testament. Titus, verse, or chapter 3, verse 5, says this. <clears throat> he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Now, when I read that verse again, it says he washed away our sins. A little bit of Naaman found in there. He washed away our sins that had contaminated us. Then in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says this. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You see, like Naaman, we have a terminal incurable disease. It's called sin. And unless it is dealt with, it will result in spiritual death. The cure is there for the asking. Like Naaman, we need to accept the free gift that God offers. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Naaman wanted to pay for it. And God, through Elisha, says, you can't pay for it. It's free Just accept the free gift. So the free gift of salvation is offered to anyone and everyone. 
If you haven't yet opened up your, lot, your heart and your life to God, it's a free gift. Tell God you accept his free gift. As it, is, as it was for Naaman, so is it for us. Cleansing and deliverance is that free gift. There's nothing we can do, nothing we must do. It's not earned or deserved. All we have to do is humbly accept the free gift. That's what Naaman did. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to you, thank you for this story that you put it in the Bible. Uh, thank you for that slave girl, God. Thank you for the example that she gives us of someone who doesn't look after her own interests but looks after the interests of someone else. Not just anybody else, but someone who is against her, who has enslaved her. May we, God, as we leave here, be a blessing to everyone we meet. And God, if there's anyone here who hasn't accepted the free gift that you offer, God, that they wouldn't put it off, that they would do that today so that just like Naaman, we can experience healing and a cure from that disease that infects us. In Jesus' name, amen.